If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verses 14 and 15 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. So we've been looking at uh, Genesis 1 through 3. After this, we've got two more sermons planned. Then we'll be on to a series on Ephesians. So we're getting to the end of this uh, series where we've been looking at the fact that God created, uh, <clears throat> what God created when he created it, and um, in some ways how and why he created the world. He created a good world originally. It's a world of uh, uh, a place where his creatures, us, are able to uh, have relationship with him and come to know him and dwell with him and and he originally created that as a place where the relationships were all right and good. Brokenness was not a natural part of the original creation. The way that we see the world around us now uh, is not the way things are supposed to be. It's not the original intent, and it's not the ultimate goal of uh, God's creation. Uh, but it's a result of our sinful rebellions. We've been looking at you know, why the world is the way that it is, why our relationships are the way they are. And it's uh, because of our sin, because of our self-centeredness, our autonomy. And sin has these consequences of guilt and shame and fear, uh, fear of God and withdrawal from him and withdrawal from relationships with others in an attempt to feel okay about ourselves uh, because we've chosen the way of autonomy. And so generally and, uh, and essentially, uh, we live in a world of disintegration, a world where our relationships are disintegrating and the whole world, even, even physically, you know, is, uh, is disintegrating. And that's because of us. It's because of the way that we uh, broke things. <clears throat> we broke God's good creation. And up to this point, you talk about disintegration, you talk about death, that's what death is, you talk about hell. Um, those, those are things that we, we brought on ourselves because we violated the reality of our created purpose and, and the reality of our created nature as uh, those who were made in God's image. And now, um, you know, to this point, basically talking about the... Uh, the results, the effects of sin, death and hell included, has been something we've brought on ourselves. Now we see the curse of God. We, see, we begin to see clearly God's active role in opposing sin, in declaring judgment, and uh, in setting right what went wrong. It might seem strange to us uh, that the Bible doesn't just end right after Adam and Eve sinned because God had promised in the day that they eat that fruit, they will surely die. Um, they, they brought death into the world, but the story continues. We imagine God would be just simply to wipe the slate clean, just to start over maybe, uh, annihilate all of his opposition, destroy Adam and Eve and the devil himself, and just, just uh, do that in his justice. We imagine that God would be just to, to annihilate us, but instead he commits himself to the restoration of creation, especially the restoration of humanity to peace, peace with him, uh, and the biblical concept of peace goes just beyond, you know, kind of people not fighting each other. It's the way things are supposed to be. Uh, that's the idea that the Bible gives you when it talks about peace. And that's what God has committed himself to restoring between him and humanity and the way that the, this world works. He's fixing it all. He's going to make it the way that it's supposed to be. Again, um, restoring everything and especially humanity to a right and good relationship with himself. And we have the promise of that. The very first promise of it, uh, that restoration, uh, made right here in our text, even in the beginning of his curse, even in the beginning of his judgment, we have the promise of his restoration. And this goes straight against all of our instincts, our suspicions that God is probably just a mean, um, spiteful, vengeful, vindictive, 
arbitrary kind of God, right? That may be our baseline presuppositions about God, uh, the suspicions that we have about him, that he's someone who doesn't really care for us, somebody you'd probably want to avoid really at any cost. Uh, that's, uh, those are the suspicions that we have against about God, and, and the, the truth of his, the, the promise of his restoration goes straight against that. The truth is that even though we've taken the devil's side in his war against God, God has promised from the very beginning to win us back, and that's the story of the whole Bible from beginning to the glorious ending of it. That's the story of the whole Bible. And so that's what we'll look at, the beginning of that, uh, here this morning. Um, in, the, in the garden, after their sin, when God is interrogating and investigating and questioning Adam uh, for his own sake in order to begin the reconciliation process, um, the, the order that he addresses the folks are with Adam first, the man first, who passes the blame to Eve, and then so God questions her, and she passes the blame to the serpent. And the way that God addresses us in the curse is in the reverse order, serpent first, woman, man. And uh, so that's the way we're going to look at those. Um, and this week we're going to look at the serpent. The, God's addressing the serpent. Next week we'll look at him addressing uh, the, the woman and the man. So, uh, so let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we're glad that you've not left us in the dark about what it means to have a relationship with you and how to have a relationship with you, but you've given us your word, you've given us your very son, so that we can know you and be made right and experience true peace, a peace that uh, passes understanding, uh, a peace that we have in some ways only a, a little taste of now as we look forward to the world to come when Everything is made right and made the way that it's supposed to be. But we pray that you would give us a taste of the peace that we can have with you through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as you make him known to us through even this word that stands at the very beginning um, of, of all the scriptures. Make your son known to us so that we can have a relationship with you, uh, one of peace and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So several weeks ago, we looked at the serpent's uh, role, the temptation that uh, comes earlier in uh, Genesis chapter 3, the temptation of Eve in the garden, and that his main goal was to undermine our relationship with God, our relationship of trust with God. His main goal, he, he's going to attack us by attacking that relationship and ultimately by attacking God's character in our sight, by attacking uh, his reputation with us, And so he portrayed God as selfish and petty and uh, invited us to be suspicious of God, to distrust God, to break that relationship ourselves. That's what the devil uh, in, in this serpent, however that works, whether he was possessing the serpent or he came in the form of a serpent or whatever, however it worked, we know it's the devil from the rest of the scriptures, uh, his main goal in in destroying us and attacking us was to undermine our relationship with God where he made God look petty 
and, uh, and called us to be suspicious of God, of his character and his, his intentions. And it worked. And since the garden, we are the kind of people who, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary in the world around us, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, uh, we believe that God is stingy. We believe that he is uh, withholding, that he's cruel. We believe that he's arbitrary in his law-giving. Right? In short, uh, we believe that God is a tyrant whose rule we should overthrow. Uh, self-rule would be better. Right? We believe that. We've bought the devil's lie. That means that the serpent, the devil, he's had his way with us. Right? He holds sway over us. We are his captives. We are his slaves, the Bible says. Uh, this idea might seem repulsive to you. Uh, or maybe superstitious or primitive. You know, you, may, you might think that the devil, uh, if you believe in a personal devil at all, you might think that he only takes people captive through such things as possession, bodily possession, where he takes control of a person and uh, makes him or her do his will. Right? You might think that that's the, that's the main way God, uh, I mean, uh, sorry, the, the devil um, takes people captive. Or you might insist, no one's pulling my strings, I've got free will. I'm in charge of my life. Right? Uh, no one's in charge of me. The devil's certainly not in charge of me. You might think that the whole idea of a personal devil is preposterous. Right? Just right at the root. Don't believe in such a thing. Don't believe in such a person. And of course, if the Bible's true, then those thoughts simply confirm his power over you. Uh, those are exactly the kind of thoughts you would expect him to promote. That's, that's the way that uh, he's portrayed. He wants you to believe that uh, you're not under his dominion, under his power, under his authority. He wants you to believe that you're in control of your own life, that maybe the devil doesn't even exist. If you believe those things, then um, that's exactly the kind of thought you'd expect him to promote if he were really in charge of the world the way the Bible says that he is. His captivity, his oppression is a subtle one. Right? It is not usually sensational like you see in the Gospels where you've got so many people who are actually possessed by the devil himself or by demons or by whole armies of demons. That's kind of a sensational, uh, maybe in some ways uh, symbolic. I'm, they're real, but uh, they're symbolic of the fact that the devil owns this world, and he owns you, and he can take over your body and do whatever he wants. Right? That's, that's what you see his power uh, expressed in the Gospels um, there as he's in combat with Jesus uh, but his captivity usually is a subtle one, right? His, his oppression of us is usually one that we're not aware of, where we've actually submitted ourselves to his power. We've submitted ourselves to his power by adopting his vision of God, by adopting uh, the distorted version of reality that he promoted for us, right? Um, and that we're, we're completely unaware of the fact, right? We just, this is how it works in our lives. We automatically assume... Uh, we automatically assume that God is not good, that if we're going to find real pleasure in the world, it's going to be found in these, these lusts. If we're going to find real comfort in the world, it's going to be found in things like our material possessions. If we're going to find real security in the world, it's obviously going to be in the size of our bank account, our wealth. Right? You automatically assume those things. You don't even question the fact that those things are real and those things are good and I can get those things for myself according to my own plans 
and, uh, and completely ignore, neglect, or even spit in the face of the fact that God, God is generous. God is good. There's real joy found in him. There's real security and pleasure and comfort found in him. We just automatically assume that that's not true, right? And, uh, and take a path that uh, uh, is on a trajectory away from God. And that's, that's the devil's scheme coming to fruition. That's the devil's plan and his power uh, active in our lives when we adopt the worldview that the devil wants us to have. The, the Bible calls, us, uh, calls this spiritual blindness. We've been taught by the devil himself to be suspicious of God and we've been taught not even to question our suspicion of God. We're not even aware of the fact that we are suspicious of God most of the time. That we just automatically work from a place of doubt in God's goodness or his power or his, uh, his provision. That's spiritual blindness. Second Corinthians 4, Paul says that uh, the God of this world, and he's talking about the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Jesus Christ himself is the image of God. He shows us perfectly what God is really like because he is God. He's the image of God because he is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. And also because he's the perfect human being. He's been created to reflect God's image the way that humanity is supposed to, and he does that perfectly. None of us do that. He's the only true human. He's divine and human, and in both those natures, he is the image of God. He, he tells us, he discloses to us in his very person what God is really like. Jesus Christ himself is, uh, according to Hebrews chapter 1, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And in him it may be clearly seen that God is glorious, that, that God is gracious, that God is loving and kind and generous. Uh, in him can be clearly seen that he's glorious in all goodness and beauty and truth. You see that clearly in Jesus Christ as he's portrayed in the gospel. Right? It may be clearly seen except for the fact that the God of this world has blinded us to it. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to the glory of this gospel, to Jesus Christ, and the way that he reflects who God really is, that he's good. Right? Uh, the devil's fooled us into thinking that God is our enemy. He's fooled us into thinking God's our enemy, and in winning us to his perspective, to his side in his war against God, he's actually made us enemies with God. That enmity is real. Um, because we've taken the devil's side. The enmity was his, and now it's ours. Because we believe his tale of reality. We believe what he says about God. Right? So, now, uh, by nature, we live under his rule, under his power, and it's the power of death. It's the power of disintegration. The, the Bible says that the devil has the power of death. Disintegration in our relationship with God, and in our relationships with everybody, Right? That's the power of the devil, and we live under it. Um, the devil is the god of this world in its persistent rebellion against God. It's drawing away from God. Right? The devil is the, as Ephesians says, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right? In their relational disobedience to God, the devil's the one who's in charge at work in those people. Right? And um, Jesus... Uh, 
likened to the devil in Luke chapter 11 to a strong man, fully armed, guarding his own palace, keeping his goods safe. That's the way Jesus talks about the devil. And he does this. He's the strong man, fully armed, guarding his palace, keeping his goods safe. He does this as he maintains you in your disbelief, your suspicion of God, your refusal to trust in him. That's how he works. So I've got a bit of a long quote here from uh, Lloyd-Jones that um, I put on the the church blog this week. I'm going to read it because it's really good. Um, Don't usually read a quote this long, so bear with me. Try to make it interesting. Uh, He says, whether we like it or not, the devil is controlling this world. Now let us be perfectly clear about this. I'm asserting that this is the only way to understand the history of the world. The question is, why are things as they are? There is only one adequate answer. It is the work of the devil. Our Lord's picture of humanity in sin, humanity as the result of what happened in paradise, is that the whole human race is like a number of people in a great castle. Surrounding the castle, there is a mighty wall built to an enormous height. And the castle is governed by a powerful chieftain. In a very subtle way, he allows the people a certain amount of liberty. It is a big castle. There are extensive grounds. There is a sort of parkland. And you can walk around. And some people imagine that because they're not chained in the corner of a cell and can move about, that they have absolute liberty. But the fact is that the liberty is only within the confines of the palace. Try to get out if you can. Try to scale those walls you'll find yourself clubbed back into helplessness. The problem confronting every one of us is how to escape from the dominion of Satan. The whole tragedy of the world today is that men and women do not realize that. Satan blinds the mind. The captivity is such that we're not allowed to think straightly. The captivity is such that we're not allowed to think straightly. And all of this he accomplished in the garden with the temptation of Eve, which led to sin... And all of this makes God angry. It makes God angry. And it's good news for us that it makes God angry. That the devil did this. That the devil holds this kind of power over us. It makes God angry and it is good news for us that it does. When, when God curses the serpent, when he curses the devil for his role in the fall of humanity, you hear not only the condemnation of the devil and the promise of his destruction... You hear the promise of our freedom. You hear the promise of our deliverance from his captivity, our redemption, our being brought out of captivity, our our being set free. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The point here is that God is stronger than the devil. And the devil is going to bite the dust. Literally, he's going to bite the dust. He's going to suffer humiliation. He's going to suffer defeat. He's going to suffer the stripping of his false power. And here's the wonderful part. It's the beginning of all the good promises of the sure hope that we find in the scriptures. The beginning of the gospel. Right here he says in in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So of our free choice, of our own free choice, we had placed ourselves under the devil's power, 
We were willing accomplices in our own downfall, in our own death. We had joined the devil's side in his war against God. We had joined the devil's side. But God was going to win us back, and he was going to put the enmity where it should be between humanity and the devil. Maybe you passed over it, those words there. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's saying, mark my words, I will make you enemies. Humanity and the devil will be enemies because of me. That's a promise you can take it to the bank. I'm going to win them back. They're going to be your enemies. God was telling his opponent the way that it was going to be. It's kind of like a, a cosmic game of baseball where the batter points to the place in the stands where he's going to knock that ball out of the park for the home run, the winning home run, except God wasn't going to knock a ball out of the park. He's going to knock the teeth out of the devil's face. That's, that's what he's predicting. That's what he's saying. He says, this is real spiritual warfare. Right? It's a matter of our trust. It's a matter of our loyalty. It's a matter of our allegiance. Whose side are we on? Henry Blochet says that the devil's grand plan to carry humanity with him in his war against God shall not succeed. His plan will be thwarted. A permanent hostility will prevent him from making humanity his obedient plaything. So God looks at his enemy, the devil, and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the humanity, the the, the humans. The enemy of my enemy is what? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. At the fall, uh, there was only one category of humanity, those who were on the devil's side, those who were enemies of God. And uh, God was going to create a new category, those who were loyal to God that stood against the devil. That's what God is saying here. And there would be conflict. From the very beginning, you see conflict. Cain and Abel, very next chapter. You know? And all throughout the scriptures, right through the history of humanity, you see conflict. The devil's offspring, literally the devil's seed there, um, versus the offspring or the seed of the promise. And the language is collective. The language of, of offspring uh, is collective, but it's, it's singular. Right? You get the sense that God is talking about groups and generations and armies, right? Uh, but the language that he uses is singular. It's representative. It hints at the idea of a champion, right? a single deliverer of humanity uh, from the power of the devil. And, um, and this is the beginning of the gospel. The proto-evangelion is the fancy theological word for that. The, the first gospel. The first good news. All the promises of God's grace start here. Promises of redemption, promises of salvation start here. And we begin to see even the rough shape, kind of a rough outline, the shape that our salvation will take. Right? The woman's offspring would destroy the head, bruise the head, destroy the, the head, the power, the source of the devil's power. The woman's offspring would, would, would bruise the devil's head and in the process would himself be bruised, but not in his head, on his foot. Right? It's a wound. It's kind of a flesh wound. Right? Um, 
And uh, Paul writes in Galatians that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. His son, born of a woman. So it would be the woman's offspring who would do this. And at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son. He's not the man's offspring. And the promise wasn't about the man's offspring. The promise was about the woman's offspring. Jesus is not man's offspring. He's God's only begotten son. But he's the woman's offspring. He's born of the Virgin Mary. Miraculous birth fulfills this, uh, this prophecy in a way that maybe no one would expect. And Jesus Christ, um, his life would be characterized by conflict with the powers of the devil, right? uh, the powers of darkness from start to finish. King Herod exercising the devil's own power, the, his own kind of power, the power of death. King Herod murdered all the babies in Bethlehem to try to destroy the promised seed. To to try to destroy the offspring of the woman, he killed all the baby boys. The devil himself tempted Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. The the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, those who were in charge of the people religiously during Jesus' day, uh, according to Jesus, were imitating their father, the devil, John 8, they were imitating their father, the devil, as they opposed Jesus and his message of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God. They opposed him and so imitated their father, the devil. And Judas, Judas was entered by the devil himself to betray Jesus to his death. The devil was trying to exercise his power of death over Jesus. And so in Jesus' life, And in his death, we see who the true enemy is. We see who the true enemy is. The devil is the selfish, petty, stingy, withholding, cruel tyrant. The devil's that one, not God. You see that in Jesus' life. The devil is the cruel tyrant, not God. And Mike Reeves makes a great point when he says, when I I ask atheists to describe the God they don't believe in, to describe the God that they refuse to believe in, the God they don't want to have anything to do with. When I ask atheists to describe that God, they describe Satan rather than the Trinity. They describe one who is selfish, petty, stingy, withholding, and cruel. And that's the devil, and you see that clearly in the life of Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is really like, because you see him in Jesus And you see him in mortal combat with the devil on our behalf. Things become absolutely perfectly clear. The devil is the oppressor and we want to be free of him. We want to be free of his kingdom. We want to be free of all of his ways. Psalm 84 says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. All the luxury and comforts and wealth and glory power that wickedness and the devil provide, I'd trade all of that to to take the lowest station, to to be a doorkeeper at the entrance to the house of my God. And that should resonate with us. When we see Jesus, we know that God is for us, and if he is for us, then who can stand against us? Psalm 3 is a prayer. It says, Arise, O Lord, 
Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And this is the salvation that belongs to the Lord. Jesus took our humanity. He took what we had broken about ourselves. He took in his person our humanity, and he set it straight against all the schemes of the devil. He took our humanity and put it at enmity with God. He fought the devil as a human. He beat the devil as a human. And he broke all of his teeth. So this is what Jesus says about himself when he's, again, in Luke 11, he's casting a demon out of someone who's been oppressing this man and made him mute, unable to communicate, unable to have a relationship with people. That's what the the power that this demon has had uh, in Luke 11. Casts the demon out and he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Talking about the devil. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So Jesus is the stronger man. He shows the power of the kingdom of God. He humiliated the false power of the devil. He stripped him of it. He cast out armies of demons by a, a mere word freeing people from their oppression and their power. He used the devil's own power against him to defeat him decisively. The devil has the power of death. Jesus used that power against the devil to defeat him decisively. Uh, He beat him by suffering death. In a surprising way, he didn't just kill the devil. He let the devil kill him. Jesus won us back to God by letting the devil take his life. Jesus' death on the cross is his crushing the head of the serpent and getting his heel bruised. It says in Colossians 2 that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ at the cross. So... um, like asking the devil, was death your best shot? Even the death of the Son of God himself, was that your best shot? Because, you know, it served the purpose of his salvation perfectly, and it hardly scratched him, really, in the end. Because Jesus lives, and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. Jesus lives, and death is now but my entrance into glory. Jesus, in suffering death for us and defeating it, took away all the power of the devil so that death doesn't harm us if we're in Christ, if we're in union with Christ. At the cross, God fulfills his curse. This is his curse in Genesis 3 that we see him uh, declaring against uh, the devil. At the cross, God fulfills his curse and he delivers justice to his enemies. He executes his wrath against sin and the devil's work. And God forgives his enemies. And he wins them back, so they're no longer his enemies. That happens at the cross. That's what Jesus said in the the gospel reading from earlier this morning. Now is the judgment of this world. Talking about the hour of his own death, the hour of his sacrifice, the hour of the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. They won't be enemies with me anymore. They'll be on my side. 
And he said this to show about what kind of death he was going to die. Hebrews 2 says that he became like us. He took our humanity. He became one of us. He became like us so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To deliver us from the devil's power. Like we read earlier, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the champion we needed. He's the woman's offspring. The offspring of the woman who would carry our humanity to victory in enmity with the devil. Take our humanity and set it against the devil and beat the devil on our behalf. He's that champion that we needed. And now the Bible makes it clear still that the devil is at work in the world sort of like a dying snake whose head has been crushed, writhing and snapping at whatever's in reach for a few more moments, gasping for its last breath. It's still dangerous, but it's pretty much dead. It's, it's decisive. The victory's been won, and those who trust in Christ are the devil's enemies. And we prepare for battle by putting on our armor, by equipping ourselves with the gospel. We know that that God is true, God is beautiful, God is trustworthy. God is worth pursuing with all of our lives and all of our devotion, all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's worth pursuing much more than any lusts or wealth or comfort or the things that the devil would have us pursue instead of God. Um, God is worth it. God is good. We see him and we know him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the Bible, as it draws to a close with John's uh, vision, the revelation in chapter 12, says that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, to the dust. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, our brothers, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. So by the grace of Christ We're sticking to God's side, and that's the winning side. We're sticking to God's side, and that's the winning side. He's already triumphed over the devil. So put your faith in Christ, and and you'll be on God's side. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that even here, even this sort of a mysterious hint of you winning us back to your side and putting us at enmity with the devil... And doing so through a champion who would live and die for us. All of this here sort of hidden in in the very beginning of your scriptures. We pray that you would open the scriptures to us. That you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word, your revelation about yourself. All the glories that are uh, in some senses hidden but in, in many senses 
revealed and clearly proclaimed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as he presented in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament as um, all of your purposes in salvation are unfolded right there uh, before our very eyes in black and white. We pray that you would help us to hold fast to your character, to your nature, to your reputation as it's presented here in the Gospels. We pray that you would help us to be on your side uh, against the devil more and more in our lives, that his schemes, his um, trickery, his lies, his deceits would not persuade us, but that we would be persuaded, deeply convinced all the time, more and more in this life, that you are the glorious one, you are the good one, you're the great provider of all good things, every good gift comes from you, you're generous, you're kind to us, you're gracious, where we have not deserved your good favor, but that nevertheless, you've gone to great lengths, even the cost of the life of your own son, to um, extend your goodwill to us and to bring us and to win us back from the power of the devil and to win us to your side. We pray that you would keep us on your side, keep us in the faith, keep us persuaded of the full assurance of your love for us that we see clearly through Jesus. We pray in his name and for the sake of his kingdom going forth in this world. Amen.